was early January 2022. Alejandra Chavez and her family were gathering together for something they do every year, the celebration of Three Kings Day. January 6th, yeah, January 6th, because we in Mexico, we celebrate Rosca de Reyes. Rosca de Reyes, it's a Mexican holiday honoring the three wise men who visited the newborn Christ with gifts. And the main event is a loaf of bread shaped like a wreath called the Rosca. It's a huge bread, you know, that they hide that little plastic thing in there. Hidden inside the Rosca, there are these little plastic figurines of the baby Christ. And it's a kind of game. Each person gets a slice of the bread, and everyone is wondering who will wind up with a piece that has the plastic baby Christ in it. And whoever gets that little plastic doll is the one who makes the tamales, you know, for February 2nd. Traditionally, it's considered good luck if you find the little figurine in your slice of bread. In Alejandra's family, getting one means you have to make tamales for another family celebration. They love playing the game every year. So we were just joking, you know, and then, you know, my mom said, like, oh, let's cut the rosca, you know. And then, you know, I got to make the tamales, me and my other sister. We both found a little plastic doll in this. The Chavez family lives at the Westside Mobile Home Park. And this was the scene in their trailer every January. Laughing, joking, Spanish soap operas known as telenovelas on the TV. So we were sitting down eating a rosca reyes and watching telenovelas. My younger sister says, so what, what do you guys have thought about, you know, that letter? A few weeks earlier, Alejandra's family had received a letter in the mail from New York. All 58 families living in Westside had gotten the same letter. It was from their landlord, Neil Kersner. In the letter, Neil Kersner, or actually the investment corporation he owns, informed the residents that the park was about to be sold to a new owner. The notice had arrived two weeks before in the mail, and until now, no one in the family had mentioned it. When we received the notice back in December 20th, that the park was for sale. First, I didn't even look at the notice. My mom told me, and I said, well, that is what it is, honestly. But sitting on the couch that day, they started to get more and more worried. A new owner could mean higher rents. My mom said, Mija, what are we going to do? I'm Kirby Bennett. And I'm Jamie Wanzik. Welcome to the Magic City of the Southwest, a podcast series about the places we love and the stories we tell about those places. Every city and every town across the U.S. has a story, an official story, selective pieces of history woven together into a narrative. Something we repeat over and over. We have a story like that for Durango. It's something we tell and sell to tourists. It's the train, the river that runs through town, the Native American archaeology. It's prospectors, hard rock mining, cowboys, and the old Diamond Bell Saloon. But there's something missing here. What about the complicated stories that are unflattering? The parts that don't fit easily on a travel brochure? Are these stories missing by accident or by design? 
the first episode of The Magic City, we look at a story that is barely history. It's a story that unfolded in Durango a year ago, in a neighborhood that might have disappeared. A neighborhood that was all but invisible to most Durango residents, the Westside Mobile Home Park. For Alejandro Chavez and the residents of Westside, the fate of this community meant everything. Maybe you've heard about Westside. Maybe you think it's old news. But this story shows just how uncertain history is how easy it is to neglect or forget a particular part of history. So this is the perfect story to launch our first season of the Magic City podcast. Mobile home parks have long existed in community spaces at the margin between what's visible and what's invisible. But mobile home parks are not invisible to investors. As we started reporting on this story, we realized that corporate investors have been buying up mobile home parks across the U.S. So when Eleandra and other Westside residents received the letter, it was a reminder of how closely their lives were entwined with the world of real estate investment. And that letter sent a wave of fear through the Westside community. Colorado does have a law that offers some protection for mobile home communities in a situation like this. The law gives residents the right to purchase the park themselves. But to do that, Eleandra and her neighbors would need to be able to match the sale price within 90 days. So a week later, residents got together to talk about their options. We had like a little table with spreadsheets, you know, with the name, trailer number for number, and signature. I was very impressed because about 80% of the tenants showed up to the meeting. Many of the residents at Westside worked multiple jobs, so it was significant for a large majority to show up to this meeting. And they decided to form a co-op, which was necessary if they wanted to buy their park. In less than 90 days, these residents would need to come up with $5.5 million. That's what it would cost to purchase the land and park infrastructure. There was a lot of fear about raising all that money. I I got so stressed, and I was like, I started doing some math, you know, and I was like, 5.5 million, divided by by 58 families, there's no way they have all that money. (laughs) But they also had fears about a new owner. And of course, like, a lot of people had questions. Like, the first question was, like, who, you know, who is the, who is the buyer? And no one knew at, this, at that moment. Eleandra did some research and found out that the buyer was a corporation from California known as Harmony Communities. And then I got really scared, honestly. Like, how they mistreat people, they raise rent up to 70%. Harmony Communities operates dozens of mobile home parks across the U.S. According to news reports, Harmony Communities is known for imposing strict regulations and drastically raising rents after purchasing parks. And it didn't take long for the news about Harmony to spread at Westside. And people, they had come to me and say, Alejandra, who is Harmony? And I had to tell them, like, do you think we can be there? And I said, I don't know. But we cannot last our hopes. Like, we had to cheer up each other. Like, you know, what if they buy it? I might have to abandon my trailer and leave. Westside residents were already familiar with one corporate out-of-state landlord. Since 2013, a company called IQ Mobile had owned the park. Residents told us that for eight years, IQ Mobile frequently raised rents and rarely responded to concerns. The people at Westside wanted something different, and Alejandra was ready to fight. That's when I realized, okay, now my community needs me. Now it's time to step up. So, Alejandra and her community had less than 90 days to raise $5.5 million. This was a lot of pressure on them. 
They were still learning about what the law said and who they might partner with. Plus, things were moving slowly in the community. Some residents were still waiting to have the letter translated into Spanish so they could read it. Meanwhile, they were up against forces that were used to moving quickly and well accustomed to leveraging big money and closing deals in a matter of weeks. This is a realm of financiers and investors worth billions of dollars. This was a world invisible to them and to us. For decades now, there's been a gold rush of investment in mobile home parks. And in order to understand what was happening at Westside, we need to unpack this history for you. So we're going to leave Alejandra and her community for a bit to explore the business of mobile homes. In the spring of 2022, that was a challenge we were facing. We needed to understand this world and find an investor who would talk to us. The most obvious place to start was with the investor who had decided to sell Westside Mobile Home Park. That's Neil Kersner. Kersner was Westside's landlord, based in New York. In the time he had owned Westside, none of the residents we spoke to had ever had any direct contact with him. I never met him, honestly. I don't know who that guy is. Just they showed me a picture of him. And then they say, oh, that's the owner. I say, who? The owner? Oh, I didn't know. Never met him. Never. When residents had problems like sewage or water issues, they had to call a 1-800 number. From what we heard, it was rare they received a response. So we were curious if Neil Kersner would talk to us. You were curious. I was skeptical. But we found his profile on LinkedIn. We sent him a message. No response. Then a fellow journalist shared his number with us. And we called him. We left four messages. And then one day, he picked up the phone. Hi, is this Neil? Uh, my name is Jamie. I'm a journalist. We wanted to hear Neil Kersner's side of the story, why he bought Westside, his experience as an owner, and we had a few questions about the way he ran the park and his relationship to residents. Yeah, I'm, I've been working on a story about Westside Mobile Home Park, and I wanted to do, set up an interview with you to just get your perspective on... But he said no. He would not do an interview with us. Okay. The next obvious choice was Harmony Communities. That's the California-based company that was looking to buy Westside. For months, we called, emailed, and left messages. The office staff at Harmony Communities sometimes answered. They took our names and told us someone would get back to us, which never happened. During one follow-up call, we were left on hold for 15 minutes. Eventually, we realized that they weren't going to talk to us either. But we weren't limited to these two players. And at this point, we were still certain we'd find someone. According to Ibis World, a global industry database, revenue from mobile home parks in the U.S. grew from $4 billion in 2012 to $8 billion in 2022. And some of the largest firms in the world have mobile home park investments. The Blackstone Group, Apollo Global Management, Stockbridge Capital. It's also a world that's flourishing in the age of influencers and online media entrepreneurs. And it didn't take long for us to find Mobile Home University, a company that teaches people how to invest in mobile home parks through courses, workshops, and boot camps of various kinds. After reading through the company's website, we thought, perfect. 
We can learn everything we need to know in a single interview. And within a few days, we had landed an interview with the group's co-founder, Frank Rolf. On their website, Frank's bio says that he and his business partner are currently ranked as the fifth largest mobile home park owner in the U.S. 250 communities in 25 states. That is a lot of mobile homes. It was a big breakthrough for us. Frank Rolf talked to us at length about his courses and why he invests in mobile home parks. Finally, we had an investor telling us how it all worked. But later, when we asked Frank to sign a release that would allow us to use our interview for this podcast, he told us he wasn't sure. He said he was suspicious. He didn't trust journalists. We had a back and forth, emails and phone calls. It went on for weeks. In the end, Frank Rolf wouldn't let us use the interview for this podcast. It was one of the most discouraging moments for me working on this story. Three hours of interview material had so much helpful information for understanding how mobile home investment works and who is doing it with an industry leader. And it was suddenly off the table. What a bummer. It was confusing too. Why would he do an interview with us and then revoke permission to use it? It seemed like he didn't take us seriously, didn't like us, didn't trust us. We were frustrated. Intimidated. A little irritated. A little angry, maybe. Indignant, but also starting to feel more insecure. Maybe a little out of our depth. But we needed a breakthrough. So we made dozens of calls to other investors. We emailed, we texted, we sent direct messages on social media platforms. It turns out the food chain of mobile home park investment is deep and wide. Publicly traded companies, smaller, privately owned entities, hyper-local outfits. And then there are the players who peddle expertise, like Mobile Home University from how-to podcasters to companies that offer webinars. Chat rooms, TikTok, and YouTube influencers. So many people, all eager to tell you their story about how they got rich investing in mobile homes, and how you can too. And yet, after all that, no one said yes. Most people didn't even call us back. I began to understand it a little. I mean, if I was an investor, what's the upside of talking to a couple of reporters working on a podcast? Awesome. Howdy. Until we landed an interview with this guy. My name is Brian Schlichter. I go by Investment Joy on social media. I'm essentially a full-time investor business owner from Central Ohio. Um, kind of like my claim to fame, I've got a little over 5 million subscribers on social media between YouTube, TikTok, Facebook. Our first interview with Brandon Schlichter was on the phone. He's a real estate investor in Ohio, and he has a very active presence on social media. And he has tons of YouTube videos about his various money-making projects. Real estate, car washes, vending machines, laundromats, the list goes on. Brandon owns one mobile home park. As an influencer who has basically turned his life inside out to share the good, bad, and ugly about his investments, Brandon was very ready to answer our questions. Including the biggest question, the one we'd been dying to ask. Why are so many investors interested in these mobile home parks? For a lot of investors that I've done business with, they like the idea that the tenant owns the location and all you're doing is renting dirt. 
renting dirt. Renting dirt. Renting dirt. Renting dirt. You buy a piece of land zoned and permitted for mobile homes. You maintain utilities and you rent the dirt. In exchange for a steady monthly flow of cash. Most landlords spend significant sums of money and significant management effort on maintaining the quality of a property. After a few interviews over the phone, Brandon talked to us from his home studio. So if you're an investor and you want a a lower management headache, you want to be more profitable per hour of time that you spend on your project, a trailer has just a huge inbuilt benefit because you are able to exempt yourself from a lot of those management headaches. You're just renting out the ground. Yeah, it's absolutely in the foreground of investors' minds when it comes down to the advantages of renting land for trailers because then you don't have to make the repair. If they own the trailer, it's their own fault because something breaks. And the tenant has a built-in desire to continue to make that payment. That built-in desire for mobile home owners to make payments comes partly from having skin in the game, which Brandon says make mobile home park tenants behave differently than someone who is renting an apartment. There's at least a little bit of a level of ownership inside of a trailer park if the tenant owns the mobile home because they don't want to see that mobile home destroyed or it to be repossessed or it to be impounded. They have quite a bit of desire to continue to make those payments. So they end up, for the most part, for the investor being a slightly higher quality tenant, as long as you run the park well and the people in the park own their units. And there's one more thing that Brandon says reinforces that built-in desire for tenants to keep paying rent. Laws. It's a relatively straightforward eviction process you do have the ability to repossess somebody's trailer if they stop making payments. Ohio's a little bit more tenant-friendly when it comes to protections on that trailer, but states like Kentucky, Tennessee, uh, Alabama, Mississippi, the owner of the trailer park can repossess the property pretty quickly if the user stops making payments. So for the most part, the default rate on trailers is very, very low compared to a traditional rental. It was refreshing talking to Brandon, He made everything super clear. And he also gave us insights into the motivational psychology of owners and investors on one side and tenants on the other. Landlords want to minimize headaches and expenses and maximize income. A tenant doesn't want to lose their home. It's worth mentioning here that the term mobile home is somewhat misleading. Many are on wheels, and it's theoretically possible to take one somewhere else. But moving them is expensive. So when Brandon used the term built-in incentive, That's also what came to mind for us. There is a built-in incentive for a tenant to stay put, even when a new landlord raises your rent by 50 or 70%. Brandon also helped us understand the economics at work here. There's a huge demand for affordable housing. It's an issue, it's a crisis, there needs to be more housing. In other words, there's a need. And mobile homes fill that need. By nature, they're much more affordable than a stick-built home. And you have the customers. Customers who specifically want mobile homes. A lot of people want to live in a location that is not an apartment, but they also need something that's small. 
And trailers are kind of at that intersection of slightly more affordable, smaller, and they're not apartments. What we didn't know until we talked to Brandon was there are some limits on the supply side of the equation when it comes to mobile home parks. Which is why investors can be sure there won't be too much competition anytime soon. It's a hard business to get into in most states. They're heavily regulated anymore. In most states, and Ohio is very much this way, you cannot make a new mobile home park. There has not been a license, a new license issued in the state of Ohio, I think for five to 10 years. I'd have to double check on that number. But from what I understand, they don't have any intentions to do it in the, in the near future because just the legal process is a nightmare. So if you're an investor, the ability to purchase one is very much a slam dunk. Brandon Schlichter's insights about mobile homes come from his experience as a small-time investor, but he's also drawing on his childhood in Southern Ohio. He's 37 years old. He grew up poor. His dad was a trucker, and the family lived paycheck to paycheck, never saving or investing money. Mobile homes were everywhere. Growing up, we used to go to a church down in the hills, very much in southern Ohio, and it just seemed like half of the people that we knew growing up lived in a trailer. As a kid, Brandon didn't see mobile homes as a ticket to wealth. They signified poverty. I was scared to death of mobile homes when I was a kid. Um, most of them were very run down. They were cold all the time. I felt very lucky that even though we were living most of that time in an old ratty farmhouse, that at least I didn't have to live in a single wide trailer. As he got older, Brandon started paying attention to money and wealth. Who had it and who didn't. As time went on, it became pretty obvious to me, especially once I got into real estate, that mobile homes can make a lot of money. I started talking to people about, you know, who the wealthy individuals were, who the big developers were in town. And one of them was a man that runs a company, still to this day, uh, Elsie's Incorporated. His name's Ace Elsie. Mr. Elsie is one of the wealthiest investors in my region of Southern Ohio. He has over a thousand mobile home pads, but then they are the dealer rep for Clayton Mobile Homes, I believe. And then they also have a financing wing. So they sell trailers. They own locations where trailers sit. And then to make things even better, they provide the financing. There was a moment that helped permanently change Brandon's view of mobile homes. He was 21 years old, he had recently gotten his license to sell real estate, and he listed a trailer for sale in one of Ace Elsie's mobile home parks. So one day, he was in his car, driving through one of his mobile home parks, looking for comparable properties, which is something you do as a real estate agent. And in this specific mobile home park, they had 250 trailers. And the lot rent at that specific time was, you know, $300 a month, maybe $325. Um, let me do the math on that real quick because I know I spouted out that number pretty quick. But that's uh, over $80,000 a month in income that he was generating off of one mobile home park. And he had multiples. I just could not believe at that point how much money this guy was making on what some of the people in my community would look down upon. They would just say, oh, that's just for poor people 
or people on Social Security fixed incomes, people who can't really afford a house of their own. And it just was blowing my mind just to know how much money was being generated off that specific location. Brandon helped us understand why Westside is so attractive to investors like Neil Kersner and Harmony Communities. They've got residents who have an incentive to pay and who are reluctant to complain about unfair treatment. On top of that, Durango's real estate market is overheated. Working class people have nowhere else to turn. After talking to Brandon, we couldn't help but compare and contrast him to the other investor we had talked to, Frank Rolf of Mobile Home University. Brandon and Frank operate on completely different planes. Brandon is small time. Frank and his partner claim to be the fifth largest mobile home investment company in the U.S. But the strategies that Brandon outlined for us on the phone, these are the same techniques that have been consolidated, packaged, and marketed to the students of Mobile Home University. And this is the last important piece of the puzzle that we wanted to show you. Brandon Schlichter learned all these things on his own. But the diversity of players flocking to mobile home investment are not all self-starters like Brandon. And that's why it's important to talk about outfits like Mobile Home University. They're bringing hundreds, if not thousands, of other would-be investors to the party. We still can't play you the audio from our interview with Frank Rolfe. Nor can we afford one of their courses. But it turned out we were able to find someone who had attended one of their workshops so she could write about it. The emphasis in the mobile home university was absolutely on extraction, but it was more on this like sustainable extractive business model. Dr. Esther Sullivan is an associate professor of sociology at the University of Colorado. She's the author of Manufactured Insecurity, a book about the history and sociology of mobile homes in the U.S. And as part of her research, she attended a three-day mobile home university boot camp at a resort in California. I attended the mobile home university for my book to get a sense of not only what they were teaching at the mobile home university, but also to get a sense of who is attending, who are the would-be mobile home park investors. And I learned that it's everybody. I mean, people that were taking this course with me were everybody from, you know, a married couple that listened to a podcast on passive income to people that were retiring from Goldman Sachs and looking to do this in their retirement. It's a vivid image. Would-be investors gathered at a luxury resort, sitting shoulder to shoulder and soaking up advice from the kingpins of mobile home investing. I think the biggest takeaways are these investors are looking to find parks where investments will be minimal and where maintenance can be pawned off to residents themselves and where rents can be raised four to six percent every year to ensure long-term stable income, but without rocking the boat so much that these residents will need to pick up and leave. As we talked with Dr. Sullivan, we told her about what was happening at Westside. She was not surprised. This story of Westside Mobile Home Park is really the story of manufactured home communities across the country. 
Esther Sullivan's book highlighted a big change in mobile home parks. Historically, owners were local. Those types of owners over the last decade or two have been replaced by out-of-state, oftentimes corporate or institutional investors that have almost no relationship with the residents. And so their rent hikes are faceless. Compared to faceless corporate landlords, Esther Sullivan said on-site owners did things differently. And this brings us back to Westside, which has a mom-and-pop part of its history, too. Since 2013, an investment company had owned it. But before that, the owners were Bud and Bonnie Kerr. My name's Walter Kerr. I go by Bud. And uh, <clears throat> my wife and I moved here in, in August of 1998. We bought Westside Mobile Park from my brother. He'd owned it for about three years. Um, all my life, I've been a truck driver, bus driver. In the late 1990s, Bud and Bonnie were looking to invest their 401k into something. My brother owned this park, and after about a year of looking, he said, you know, we want to retire. Well, they made us a deal on it. We couldn't refuse, so that's how we got here in August of 98. Bud and Bonnie lived at Westside. They did all the maintenance themselves, and over time, they formed a close relationship with the residents. We didn't raise rents all that all that often. Uh, my wife and I are not business people. I'm a truck driver. And uh, we came here, and, and our, our philosophy was that that you know, the people in the park were, were low-income, hard-working people. And if I raised rents $10, which I don't think I ever had to raise more than $10, if I raised rent $10, we looked at it like it's going to affect them a lot more than us. And so we would hold off as long as possible. As the years went on, Bud and Bonnie decided to retire and sell the park. They expected to sell it to owners like themselves. But they were surprised when Neil Kirstner from New York reached out with an offer. Bud knew the ins and outs of all the infrastructure issues at the park. He kept records of all the repairs he made to the power lines, the sewers. He says he gave Neil Kersner a rundown of the challenges he would face as the new park owner. And he decided to buy it anyway, and I guess he's running all right. But I mean, I look at the park and it's pretty shabby now. Trees that haven't been pruned, roads that haven't been taken care of. It's just a difference in philosophy, and I'm not saying he's wrong, but it wouldn't have been right for me. In our conversation with Bud, he said more than once that he's not the business type. We asked him what he meant by that. Well, number one, I'm a Christian, and I and I believe that I, you're there to serve people, and the people I'm there to serve in, in this case was the people in the park. I mean, if if they all left, I'm out of a job. That's my whole investment. You can still find mom and pop owners who operate mobile home parks. But the past few decades have seen a sharp rise in the number of investors who want to get in the game. In Colorado, 66% of mobile home parks have out-of-state owners. And when Neil Kersner purchased Westside from Bud and Bonnie Kerr, it marked a big change in the lives of residents. Aleandra and other Westside residents have good memories about the time that Bud and Bonnie were their landlords. I was 12 years old. Everything was green, like we had more grass, our roads were clean. 
the prior owners, they were really nice, sweet people, understandable people. So there's not just caring about their business, but they also were human. They're human beings. Alejandra's memories of Westside invoke feelings of safety and stability. Westside was her first home in the U.S. when she arrived here from Mexico in 2003. Her parents came to Durango first 20 years ago. They came looking for work and a better life for their family. But the kids stayed behind in Mexico. Alejandra was just 10 years old. Her sisters were younger. So my parents were working and they didn't know nothing about money. So people were taking advantage of them. Like they were taking their full checks and they were giving like $20 to them. Money was tight and the three sisters had to find work in Mexico. They would wake up at 3 a.m. to peel shrimp, then go to school afterwards. It, It was hard. Because I, I, I was too young, too young to have the responsibility of my two siblings. For so many reasons, the situation in Mexico became worse, and eventually the three sisters had to get out of there. One morning, instead of going to school, Alejandra and her sisters left the house where they were living, alone. I grabbed both of them, and I took a taxi, and we went to the bus to stop and. We traveled all the way over here, and we were very, very young. So, and we did, you know, we went through hard stuff, like we walked the desert, and we ran out of water. We, my sister got a bit by a snake, and yeah. There was a lot of joy for the family when Eliandra and her siblings finally made it to Durango. The girls reunited with their parents and the family purchased trailer number 57 at Westside. Trailer 57 was basically an empty frame and her father remodeled it. They only had a, a blanket because they didn't have nothing. You know, like everybody, I think, you know, they start from low and slowly started building, you know, their house and buying their furniture and stuff like that. Today, her parents live in a different trailer at Westside. The living room is decorated with cozy couches. A candle is always burning. Toys are often underfoot and scattered around the house. People think that because I live in a mobile home, you know, it, it's a trashy place. Like, no, this is my, this is my happiness, my daughter's happiness, my parents' happiness. There's one more layer of mobile homes to explore here, our cultural attitudes about them. How do you feel when you look at a trailer? Can you imagine feeling the way Alejandra does? Or do you look at mobile homes with discomfort, maybe even disdain? How we look at trailers, how we look at mobile home parks, this is an important part of the story too. Here's Dr. Esther Sullivan. In my book, I coined this term sociospatial stigma. Because, you know, a lot of us are aware of the social stigma around so-called trailer parks, right? So these manufactured housing communities are highly stigmatized in media representations, in books and movies. We still see that stigma today. Socio-spatial stigma. These words are like ear candy to me. 
I'm a shameless nerd for academic theory, and when I read these words in Dr. Sullivan's book, in my mind, they glowed like Christmas lights. Dr. Sullivan says socio-spatial stigma is why we isolate mobile home communities and keep them away from residential areas. She says this stigma has everything to do with how we feel about trailers when we look at them. What I show in my book is how a long history of planning policy is implicated in creating spatial stigma that then helps to construct and produce and reproduce that social stigma. Our social view of mobile home parks is entwined with where we put them and vice versa. We use zoning laws to keep mobile home parks out of the way at the fringes of our cities. And this makes it easy for us to stereotype these communities. But we didn't always see mobile homes this way. Dr. Sullivan says there was a time when mobile homes were luxury items. The first mobile homes were really mobile. They were trailers to be pulled behind, oftentimes, the vehicles of the very wealthy. They were kind of playthings for those that could afford both an automobile and then a towable home uh, for their, you know, recreational pursuits. Then the Great Depression happened. That's when mobile homes became a kind of affordable housing for people in search of work. And as that happened, these homes began to consolidate in the very first kind of mobile home parks or encampments of these homes. But most people didn't want a mobile home encampment in their neighborhood. So that's why many present-day manufactured housing communities are located in these kind of substandard areas. They're alongside highways, they're in industrial or commercial zones. They're zoned away from the places that everybody else lives in, whether you're a homeowner or a renter. And so they're kind of, in that way, removed from the moral universe, I think, of many people. They're not, it's kind of hard to care about the things that you're not seeing. As you drive west out of Durango along Highway 160, if you know where to look, you can see West Side. Right past the Jiffy Lube and the turn to the recycling center, it's on the left-hand side of the road under the cottonwoods. Maybe you've noticed it. But more likely, you haven't. And that's what Esther Sullivan is talking about, a socio-spatial stigma that makes many of us look away or never even look at all. This idea helped me find words for a feeling I've known for years but could never describe. In high school, my parents divorced, and my dad moved into a mobile home park north of Durango. And there was always this feeling I had living there, a feeling of shame as I got on the bus at his house, of not wanting to tell my classmates who lived at the golf course a few miles away that I lived with my dad in a trailer. It makes me think of my own upbringing on the Navajo Nation, I was raised to feel proud about my ancestry. But when I tell outsiders I'm from the res, I feel that self-consciousness. I find myself wondering about assumptions they have about me. There might be a word that describes how people stigmatize my life, my history. But so far, I haven't come across anything. Socio-spatial stigma comes close. Maybe. We 
we only had two months left, we only had like 65 days. When we last left the Westside residents, they had about two months to raise $5.5 million. They needed financing, and finding financing was challenging. They approached several affordable housing nonprofits, some local, some national, but no one could offer support. So we were like, okay, so who else is going to help us, you know, like... Like, believe me, like, we were even, like, we were down, like, I don't think we're going to go nowhere. I don't think this is going to happen. Each day brought more pressure. Each day was one step nearer to possible failure. It was affecting Alejandra emotionally and taking a toll on her health. Like, I couldn't sleep. I wasn't even hungry. Like, it was, I, I felt like zombie. Alejandra was discouraged after so many rejections. Some days, she just fell apart. That's the most that I do regret, like, it's crying in front of my daughter, but there was some point of I couldn't, you know, hold it no more, so. But then a Denver-based nonprofit heard about Westside's situation. That's when Elevation said that they were going to help us. Elevation, as in Elevation Community Land Trust. That level of hope and aspiration was so inspiring to me and, and really just exactly what Elevation is all about. Here's Steph Gafanchi the CEO of Elevation. And so my response was that we wanted to create something together. Elevation said, we can help you guys, you know, and then we were like, we didn't know who Elevation was. Community land trusts like Elevation are accustomed to working on affordable housing projects, but the houses are permanent structures. In the land trust model, the organization holds the title of the land in perpetuity. Low-income residents own their houses, but they lease the land underneath at an affordable rate. Community land trusts don't typically work with mobile home communities, but Stefka Fanchi told us that she had been wanting to explore the possibilities when her organization learned about Westside. And then Stefka said, I want to dream with you guys. I, win- I want to be part of that dream. Let's dream together. And they said, we've all dreamed of having our own home. It's something that we all think about. And and what if we could have our own bedrooms? And what if our children could paint their room the color that they wanted to? And how would we decorate it if we did that? It's something we've all dreamed about. Within a few weeks, the residents of Westside had signed their right of purchase over to Elevation. We really came in at the tail end of it. There was probably 40 days left in uh, that 90-day time period when we got involved. And so they were really um, at a deadline point. With that deadline looming, Elevation secured $5.46 million. This included a $1.5 million loan from La Plata County. Then, Westside and Elevation submitted their offer on March 15, 2022. This was a stressful time for Eleandra. Like I, was, I was drinking coffee, and then my mom, she saw me like my eyes were all like red and like swollen. She was what's wrong? I said, it's just, I can't sleep, mom. I was trying to close my eyes and I just, I couldn't because a lot of stuff, it's, it's going through my mind. Days later, we found out that it was rejected. So I broke down in tears because I thought this is it. On March 18th, the corporate owner of Westside rejected the first offer. Harmony Communities had made a more favorable cash offer. But Westside and Elevation still had time to make a counteroffer. After that rejection, we had five days before the end of that time period. So we had to put together the second offer in five days. They had five days to find $550,000. 
And what occurred during that week was a remarkable community effort to support the residents of Westside. Residents had taco sales, they launched an online fundraising campaign, and at a benefit concert in downtown Durango, they raised $13,000 in one night. And then a Durango nonprofit called the Local First Foundation donated $535,000. The funds came from local businesses that pledged 1% of their gross revenues to the La Plata Impact Fund. The story was everywhere. There were flyers around town, headlines in the Durango Herald. U.S. Senator John Hickenlooper used his clout to help Westside residents, too. Suddenly, Alejandro was fielding interview requests. That made her a little afraid. We were very scared about that retaliation uh, once we spoke to the Durango Herald because of our status, immigration status. People didn't want to interview. People didn't want to talk to the media. We saw what had happened before when you become more public to the community. There's a collective fear in Alejandro's community, a fear of being targeted by immigration and customs enforcement when they make public statements. When I was detained by immigration, because I got detained by immigration, they came and picked me up from my house, and they took me all the way to Aurora. When Alejandra was 18 years old, she was taken from her family. She spent five days in an immigration detention center in Aurora, Colorado, 300 miles away from her home in Durango. So I knew that feeling what it is to lose your family. I was there by myself for five days, and I never thought that I was going to see my family again. So I had to fight for my family because they were there for me when I got detained. After five days of fundraising and support from the community, Westside and Elevation Community Land Trust submit a second cash offer. They're expecting to hear back from Neil Kersner the following Monday, but instead it's total silence for almost a week. As the days drag on, residents are once again held in suspense and uncertainty. Yeah, we really want this to, to happen, but we don't know. We in the middle of this excruciating like period, anxious. we visit Alejandra and her parents' trailer. Oh my gosh. I feel no. a nervous. It's being been a nerve-wracking. Yes. <laughs> Everybody's waiting. Everybody's waiting for a positive answer. Um, I have to answer this one call because we might have some answer for this. Okay. Class, so let me answer. The mood is heavy, but while we are sitting on the couch with her, she receives a message. Oh, at 5.30, Stefka wants to talk to us. A las cinco y media, Stefka quiere... Déjeme... Alejandra breaks the news to her family in Spanish that Stefka from Elevation has good news. The mood shifts and neighbors start to pile into the trailer. Okay. Yeah? Even more residents gather inside. Hi, Stefka. This is Alejandra. Alejandra is in the kitchen setting up a Zoom call. And finally, Stefka Fanchi is there on the screen. Uh, so I call a few of our neighbors, and some of them are here. Okay, so I wanted to give you an update. Um, it has been a really tough week. We have been in contact with the seller, with the broker, and with the other buyer, the company, all week. Um, and I do have an update, and that is that we are buying the West Side Business.
History can read like a fairy tale. Or like facts in a textbook. Driving home that night, we were sure that we'd witnessed history being made in Durango. And we couldn't resist writing that fairy tale ending. People who didn't have money or connections, people who work hard for everything they have, they'd won a battle against wealth and power. And in that moment, we felt certain. This is how you break the system and build a better one. This is how you reimagine affordable housing. In some ways, the fairy tale has turned out to be real. And now they do birthday parties, they do all kind of, you know, community stuff over here. We buy new chairs. Today, over a year later, things look different at Westside. For one, residents have reclaimed the building where the previous manager lived. Now it's a community space. Before, no one was able to enter at all. Just, it was private. In the corner, there's a pinata after a recent birthday party. During the week, the space also serves as childcare for some families. The kitchen is available for collective cooking. It's a place where the community can hold meetings. The space is for everyone now, and that's just one of many improvements made by the land trust. Water quality is also a lot better for residents. We have good water pressure. The water doesn't stink no more. It used to smell like uh, like suffer, but now they're able to drink it. And elevation has stabilized rent and slightly decreased utility costs for residents. I mean, some of the moms who used to have up to two jobs, I know one of them quit a job because she said, Alejandra, I don't need to have two jobs. Now I can be part of my daughter's life, see her grow. Alejandra says residents feel calm now. Children ride their bikes around the neighborhood, People arrive home from work and relax together under a neighbor's patio. But there are parts of the story that are not the fairy tale we'd imagined. In the thrill of Westside's success, we missed an important detail. It's kind of a huge one. It turns out that in order to keep their mobile home park out of the hands of corporate investors, Westside residents and the land trust agreed to get rid of the mobile homes. What we're going to be doing over time is redeveloping. Here's Stefka Fanchi from Elevation Community Land Trust. Building new homes on permanent foundations that folks can then purchase and be in a true homeownership situation. We want this to sink in. In the future, Westside Mobile Home Park won't have any mobile homes. The number of units will double. The trailers will be removed. Fanchi estimates this will happen in about five years. And this redevelopment plan will allow Elevation to finance the whole deal. You know, it's our intention that no one will have to leave the park at any time. So we'll, we'll start building slowly. People will move in. We'll then remove those trailers and then build more homes, etc. For nearly a year, we believed community land trusts could be a salvation for mobile home parks. So the two models, while they seem similar, are actually very different and, to a degree, polar opposites. It turns out that mobile homes don't fit with Elevation's core mission. A mobile home just can't be pushed into the the community land trust model 
because we base that on the opportunity to build wealth and equity that they can pass on to their children or that they can use to move into market rate home ownership. And that can't happen with a mobile home park. In a mobile home park scenario, that mobile home is decreasing in value over time. So we did come to the, the decision that they really can't be combined. So for now, Elevation is working with one mobile home community with no plans to take on more. We get multiple calls a week from other mobile home parks looking to do something similar. You know, can we do this at our mobile home park? And I would love to be able to do that, to replicate this wherever residents want to replicate it. But right now, we are really wanting to do the work in Durango and learn how to do that or whether we should not do that elsewhere. As Westside's redevelopment plan moves forward, Elevation will pay residents for their trailers Those who want to live in a mobile home will have to leave. We certainly will comply with the Uniform Relocation Act and will pay for them to be relocated. So we will certainly work with them and we will be paying those residents for the homes. They can then use that amount as down payment assistance or choose to not live there and just take that amount and do whatever they will with it. In our version of the fairy tale, the victory at Westside was a victory for all mobile home parks. And it was a redemption for mobile homes, too. We wanted the victory to wash away some of the stigma of mobile homes, to smash the halo of poverty and inferiority. And we can see now that this was wishful thinking. The victory of one mobile home community isn't going to change the world in an instant. Because in the real Westside story, mobile homes are standing in the way of progress. Elevation Community Land Trust concluded what banks and investors and the world at large have already decided, that a mobile home is a depreciating asset. In the end, it's still housing for profit. This leaves us conflicted. We're happy for Westside residents. But this story turns out to be a solution for just one community. Meanwhile, there are tens of thousands of other mobile home parks across the country still at the mercy of the real estate market. And the people who live in those mobile homes are too often seen as risky investments. But not so in Durango, at least this time, which is why there is still some magic in this fairy tale. For more than 100 years, working class neighborhoods came and went in this city without mention in the history books. Often these neighborhoods were swept aside without the consent of the people who lived there. Last year, the residents of Westside wrote a different story. And their success makes us ask, who are the leaders in our community? Who are the people creating new histories for Durango? What stories should we tell our children about this city? It was in bad condition. The roof were falling apart, holes on the floor. There used to be six windows right here in front. I'm pretty sure they did a, like an additional room. At Westside, Alejandra stops at trailer number 57. She says it used to be brown. And of course, they painted it. I mean, since we moved out, I have never been inside. This mobile home is where Alejandra began her life as an American in 2003. She was 12 years old. My mom and my dad moved in there first. And then uh, I think it was within two years after they moved in, we came from Mexico to this trailer. 
This mobile home brings out strong feelings. Yeah, I just feel emotional, <laughs> you know, because my mom and my dad used to work a lot to support us, you know, so it brings me like happy tears, you know, because look where we are right now. As Alejandra reflects on her childhood, her daughter Caitlin shows up on a bicycle. And this is my daughter. <laughs> oh, I wanted to meet you. What's your name? Caitlin. This is our producer, Adam Burke. What do you think about your mama? He was also excited to meet Caitlin. She's nice. (laughs) (laughs) Through Westside's evolution, Caitlin has been by Alejandra's side. We asked Alejandra how she hopes to inspire Caitlin through this experience. You know, I'm not a perfect human being. I'm not a perfect mother. But I'm hoping for her to see me that I'm a role model in her life. And, you know, everything that I do, I do, you know, for her so she can become a a good person and, you know, she can love her community and be a better person, maybe a little bit better than me. (laughs) Through it all, Alejandra says Caitlin loves her home without embarrassment or shame. I told her, I said, we live in a mobile home. Are you happy to live in a mobile home? And she said, Mom, yes, this is my palace. This is our palace, and we're happy. We're the queens. And so, you know, I like that she had the good thoughts, you know. And I want her to feel proud where she lives, where she's coming from, too. Once upon a time, there was a little girl named Caitlin who lived in a mobile home with her mother. She was a queen in her own palace. They lived in a magic city. And this little girl knew that she belonged there. That she was welcome. Embraced by her neighbors. That she was home. This podcast is a production of Magic City Studios, based in Durango, Colorado. Adam Burke brings audio magic, writing and editing, and musical scoring. Kirby and I bring the sparkle of inspiration, reporting, production and research. You can find out more about our team, subscribe to this podcast, and get in touch with us at themagiccity.org. Support for the Magic City of the Southwest comes from the City of Durango's Lodgers Tax Fund. Our podcast was created in partnership with KSUT Public Radio. Special thanks to Tammy Graham and Ken Brott at KSUT, to Isaiah Branch Boyle for recording equipment. Thanks to Tommy Crosby, Catherine Wagner, and Durango's Creative Economy Commission. To Charles DeFerdinando and Susan Jones at the Anima City Museum. To Nick Kenzorski and Gretchen Gray at the Center for Southwest Studies. And to Ryan Osborne, Jeannie Costello, and Didi Dehara Brown for their enduring passion for inclusive Durango histories. I'm Jamie Wanzik. And I'm Kirby Bennett. We'll see you next time for more stories of the Magic City.